you know, I've, I've always heard, uh, from people that a Nepal blue sheep is one of the finest hunting experiences available on earth. Cause there's no easy way to do it. I mean, you, you can take a chopper to a point to get dropped off, but you're still a two day walk from the hunting area. Yeah. And, uh, that just takes off, you know, five days of walking. It's not like they're dropping you in the sheep. So you're walking from that point and there's, there's no real easy way to do it. And, and you know, I know we've touched on this before a lot and, and something we've said, but if they had Marco Polo horns, they would be, a you know, Mark or money. Yeah. So they're, it's just, uh, you know, I think some people undervalue them for the animal they are, but the, the experience I think also limits who is able to do it because it's not a hunt that you can just say, Hey, I'm going to go, go hunt a blue sheep and, and expect to see any sort of success without preparation. Cause it's a grind. Welcome back to another episode of the GSEO podcast where hunting is the number one conservation tool. Today's guest is one of my good friends, Greg Brownlee, co-owner of Neil and Brownlee. Greg is a world-renowned booking agent, and he's one of the best, in my opinion, to do it. Um, and he and I have done a couple of uh, really cool hunts together um, in some really cool places, and uh, we'll get into a little bit of that. Uh, but before we let Greg uh, kind of run with it a little bit here, I just want to talk about uh, a little something that happened. Uh, this is our, uh, our second podcast that we've done together. Uh, we recorded one uh, a few days ago, and... Uh, yeah, I didn't have my mic on, so uh, we got all Greg's audio, <laughs> uh, but none of mine. So, you know, being a new podcast, you know, uh, mistakes are going to happen, and we're just, you know, we're going to air it out there, and not, we're not perfect. And uh, we just thank Greg for, you know, uh, having the time to be able to do it again. And, uh, yeah, if this one sucks, then it's just, uh, it's my bad. <laughs> so uh, how you doing, Greg? I'm good, man. I'm good. Uh, I was better the other day, but I'm, I'm good today. We'll, we'll try it again. Yeah, I think it'll come out. Maybe hopefully better this time. <laughs> yes, as long as uh, both both of us are being recorded. <laughs> yes, uh, I verified that record button is pushed, and I can hear, my, right. hear myself in my microphone. So I think we're good Perfect. this time. <laughs> so yeah, uh, no big deal. the cool part about that is, is uh, we had some interesting news uh, happen to Greg actually right after we get done with the podcast, and um, I'll let you guys know what that is here in a little bit. But uh, uh, first, I just want uh, Greg to kind of give us. A little background on, you know, um, his, uh, the booking agency that he's a, a partner in, you know, and kind of when, when did you get started in that, Greg? And, uh, you know, why, what's the advantage of a hunter uh, taking advantage of your guys' services um, as, for, as a booking agent? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'll answer the first part. I, I've got involved with, um, the hunting industry at a pretty young age, relatively speaking. I, you know, grew up hunting with my dad um, from the time I was really young. I mean, we, he took me deer hunting. I wasn't actually shooting anything, but he would take me deer hunting when I was five years old, dove hunting, and, you know, he'd take me a little 410. And, and uh, so I always just had a, a super interest in hunting. And I've got three brothers, and all of them hunt, but none of them have any real desire to do anything internationally where I, you know, from a young age, that's all I wanted to do. So, um, I met Jeff Neal, who's my business partner uh, and the founder of our company when I was young. I mean, his, his son, who's a year older than me, went to the same schools I did, um, played t-ball with my older brother. So, I mean, that I've known him since before I was old enough to play t-ball and, you know, my dad hunted a little bit. He hunted elk and deer and stuff, but I mean, he, he wasn't doing anything internationally. It was just kind of, um, you know, going to New Mexico and, and pack in elk hunts type thing. And, um, I met 
you know, Jeff or went over to Jeff's house when I was a kid. I, I mean, I don't know if I was five when I went to his house the first time, but I was probably, you know, seven or eight. And I saw just unbelievable amount of, you know, his trophies because his trophy mm-hmm. room was fantastic. And, um, he, uh, he had, you know, lions and grizzly bears and just stuff, uh, stuff from all over Africa, all over Asia, blue sheep and just all this stuff that I was like, Oh my gosh, I have no idea what this is. And he's, Jeff's a very, uh, gifted storyteller. So, I mean, as a little kid, he's telling you these stories and it just, I mean, it was just all, it had me hooked. And so <clears throat> honest to God, I told my dad at a young age that, um, I didn't know what Jeff Neal did, but I want to do that when I grow up. Like I didn't really understand the the business side of it, obviously, but I knew he hunted for a living and I had no clue at that point, you know, that that was even a possibility, which it really, you know, wasn't something that anybody talked about at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I started working for him a little bit when I was in high school, actually, I was, I was just helping him with brochures and stuff and filing and, yeah, whenever I was out of school for the summer and for Christmas break and, um, did that maybe senior year in high school. Um, and, uh, in, into college, I was doing it just kind of as for a little extra cash and, um, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, when I left high school, I, you know, I couldn't really, didn't really think, you know, you kind of get a little older and start to think maybe that, that working for Jeff may not be the, or doing what Jeff does may not be the, be the business model. So I was actually going to be a chiro or a, sorry, a uh, orthodontist, um, because they made enough money to hunt and they were never on call. That was literally my, <laughs> my reasoning for it. And so that's what I was, you know, I was in school for, um, just undergrad, but I was, I was on the path to become uh, an orthodontist. And when I was a sophomore in college, actually, Jeff, I was at Oklahoma state university and Jeff called me and just said, Hey, I need some help full time. And, um, do you want a job? And I, I didn't even ask what he was going to pay me. And I told, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there. And so I finished the semester in Stillwater and, um, I uh, moved back to Tulsa and switched my major to business and, uh, finished school at OSU Tulsa. And, and I've been doing it ever since. And I was 20 years old when I started. Yeah. How old was Jeff when you, uh, when you first went over to his house, when he probably had been in his thirties or. Uh, yeah, he was probably, it was early nineties. So, I mean, he would have been probably 30, um, five to, you know, 38, somewhere in there. I it, mean, he's Jeff's 30 years older than I am. So I was, yeah, he was probably 30, anywhere from 35 to 38. Man. And all that stuff that he had done by 38. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, it's unbelievable. He was the, I mean, at the time you couldn't shoot all 29 cause you couldn't kill a Thule elk and I don't remember what the other, but at the time he was the youngest guy to kill the North. It was the North America 27 when he did it. Um, and he was the youngest guy to do it. Uh, and he did it before his 27th birthday. I mean, he was like 26 and you know, a few months, obviously that's been, um, broken Lincoln tap shot 29 this year or early. Yeah. Earlier this year with a bow. (laughs) Yeah. With a bow. Um, you know, which is an incredible feat and that kid's a killer, but Jeff, you know, at the time, I mean, it was, it wasn't just that he was the youngest. I mean, it just wasn't as accessible as it is now. And that wasn't even really, uh, I mean, guys, he wasn't the first to do it. He was the youngest to do it. He wasn't the first to do it, but it wasn't like it is today as commercialized as, as it is now. And, um, the access was different. The information moved slower. So it was like, uh, you know, you kind of had to almost blaze a trail to do it. And, um, you know, he kind of started his business 
accidentally doing that. His first big game hunt was um, 1975. He went, it's when he founded the company because he went bear hunting in Alaska and just, he was in college and I think he was 19 actually, but he was in college and he went to Alaska and hunted a, a bear on the peninsula and just came home and was like, I want to do hunting. Like that's, I don't, I don't want to be in the oil industry or whatever. I want, I want to do hunting. So he, uh, started then and that's when he started chasing kind of the North American 29 and or 27. And, um, he did, got his big five real young before he was 30. And I mean, he was, he was going pretty hard when a lot of guys, you know, that wasn't even on most people's radar. He was, he was kind of chasing the Weatherby. He met Bob Spiegel at a young age and he was kind of chasing the Weatherby. Back then he was told you cannot win the Weatherby award and be in the hunting industry. So he quit that, you know, it was, Mm -hmm. it was kind of like, well, if I can't win, I'm not going to go chase a bunch of stuff that I'm not, you know, it's just going to cost a lot of money and all that stuff. So he, he switched his goals up a little bit and and was more sending clients, but no, we, I mean, this is all we do and uh, it's 47 years. That was kind of a natural fit for Jeff too, because he had already done those places that people were looking to go hunt. So for him to roll right into the booking agency, part of it was, kind of seamless really because he, he'd already been there so he i mean all right. he had to do was reach out and, and talk to the outfitter and and well, provide and a was, quality service for the people that he was sending right exactly and it was kind of like you know he's always he's got a knack for detail and and um he likes quality and always has i mean he's he dresses well his car is nice i mean he's just very 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 um organized and so like i said earlier he kind of accidentally started a company um he really like I mean, it was just like he would go places and people would say, wow, you know, he'd mailing pictures to people of his hunts. And then he'd, you know, go hunt a doll sheep and come back and start selling doll sheep for, you know, yeah. and so and he, and he went on some bad hunts too. So he understood the difference of like, okay, I can't send people there because that was a nightmare. And so, he, you know, he was kind of cutting his teeth at a young age when, you know, I mean, not a lot of people could afford hunting back then, but it was a lot more approachable uh, price-wise, even with the cost of inflation stuff. There were a lot, there was a lot more opportunity. You know, there was areas that maybe had twenty-five stone sheep have ten now, and so it was a, a different time. So, um, you know, the prices were a little more approachable as a guy starting out. But even then, I mean, he was spending a lot of money and of his own money and worked hard for it but um founded the business in 1975 and we've been doing it ever since that's all we do are you registered to come to our convention yet spots are filling up fast so make sure and go to slamquest.org and get that done we'll be holding it once again at the westgate hotel and casino in las vegas nevada january 19th through the 21st 2023 come and enjoy the greatest awards program and talk with outfitters and friends from around the world We've got some really cool next level things we're unveiling at the convention this year that you won't want to miss. So we hope to see you there. Yeah, and he kind of showed you the way, like how to how to do things correctly, the quality versus quantity, and right, um, right. everything like that. And then you kind of took it and ran with it. But uh, so what what's the what's the advantage? Like I know I know what you guys provide service wise and i mean you guys are, are some of the best to do it you're very detail oriented but right. um yeah talk a little bit about you know what is what is the advantage of using a booking agent yeah, i think you know something we've touched on before but there are there are 
a, a couple of, or I would say a few really good agencies in the, in the country. But what I feel like we excel at most is customer service, attention to detail. Um, and we're not a volume agency. I mean, we're, we actually, you know, don't want to be booking a thousand, 2000 hunts a year. That's not, not our model and never will be our model. Our, our model is to where every client we book feels like, you know, they're our only client because we want to be able to show as much attention as we can. And, and we're a small company. I mean, there's only four of us doing it. And so it's, you know, you kind of limit yourself if that's your, your real model, you kind of limit yourself to how many clients you can, you can accept because you're going to just be overwhelmed with, uh, you know, work. So, but one of the, the, you know, I think benefits to using an agent, um, especially one of the bigger agents is, We've been to these places that we represent. Um, we have a great network around the world, like I said, 47 years in the business, and we're continually looking for new areas and going to new countries and on the front cutting edge of areas that are opening. But also, you're when you're booking with us, I mean, you're booking with a lot of weight behind your your money. I mean, you're you're not just a guy who's who's you know a one off booking you're a guy that's booking with a company that may like we, we have outfitters in Zambia that we book all of their hunts. And so if you're sending somebody a million dollars a year, um, and all of their business is coming through you, they're going to make sure that they keep you happy and you being me, the, the agent. So mm-hmm. we have, you know, it's kind of a strength in number situation because one bad hunt, we walk away. And so, you know, there's, there's some exceptions, obviously of some, but a, I mean like a, a screw up, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're out, you know? And so, um, a lot of, a lot of guys understand that or they, they learn it pretty quick. And so there's, there's the weight behind us there, but also, I mean, we have great rep, or great, um, rapport with our outfitters. I mean, we treat our clients and outfitters the same. I mean, we we have very good, relationships with outfitters around the world. Um, we value our outfitter relationships. We value our client relationships. Um, and we, you know, all we want for you is to have success and, and we have a focus on quality. And so, you know, a quality hunt, a quality experience, a quality animal, that's all part of booking with us. And I think if you book with the right agencies, um, you're going to get a quality experience. Uh, it just, it, it adds to it and it, and we're not, you know, it doesn't cost you more money to book with us. It's, we we're basically paid to market hunts, but we're very selective on which hunts we market. I mean, we get, I would guess we get 10 emails a week, at least through our website of outfitters wanting us to represent them. And I mean, it's, it just isn't, that's not how we find our outfitters and that's not how we work. Yeah. And I think there's a, a lot of people think that, Oh, okay. This hunt's 25 K. And then, so they're charging me 28 K like, no, mm-hmm. you guys charge exactly what the outfitter charges. Right. 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 So yep. that, I think that's a big, uh, a big thing that, and maybe that's how it used to be back in the day. I don't know, but uh, I've heard that before, but I know that what, you know, what you guys represent number wise is exactly what the outfitter has on their website. So, yeah. And that's that, you know, that's our, our, I don't know. I think it's one of the, um, important parts that people i don't think it's necessarily the way it was done before i just think it's a misunderstanding of the the business i mean i think a lot of guys just don't understand the that aspect of it and that's fine i mean they don't they don't 
understand or ask questions or whatever about it and just have some kind of preconceived notions. But it's definitely, um, we're paid by the outfitters essentially to market their hunts. Mm-hmm. And we, we, this is all we do. I mean, the thing is, is like, I do travel a lot. I go on about three to five trips a year with clients, which sometimes are three weeks, sometimes are, you know, seven to eight days. But uh, we always have somebody in the office. We're always in the, you know, always in contact. I mean, I'm, I'm, Trey and I are, are like kind of notorious for answering emails or texts or at, at times when we probably should be <laughs> asleep, but yeah. we're just kind of always on and mm-hmm. always, always on call. And, you know, outfitters, they have a job to do and, and we have a job to do. And so like if they're in the bush and flying hunters, say you're going to, you know, Northwest Territories or BC or something like that, and they don't have time, they may not have time to answer your questions. And you may need answers now, and that's where we come in. I mean, it's it's a liaison that's available at your beck and call. He's and and you know, you're talking overseas hunts and stuff like that. I mean, they're on different time zones. You're you got guys. You might ask them a question at four in the afternoon that you need an answer to. Well, it's four in the morning where they live. So, you know, stuff like that is just you're dealing with somebody on your time zone who's all we do is deal with hunting. Um, we don't, we don't have side jobs. We're not taxidermists on the side. We're not, you know, selling land. We sell hunts and we arrange hunts and we, we book guys on trips around the world. And that is all we do day in and day out. And so guys that book with us have that, uh, you know, lifeline essentially if, if they have any questions that need immediate answers, they call us and we answer. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys are really good about the, um, the late night kind of stuff. Cause some of those Asia, you know, seven, eight hour, 10 hour difference, time difference, you know, you kind of have to be available sometimes when they're like, Hey, this outfitter's done or whatever, whatever they, mm-hmm. you know, their complaint or their, um, whatever they want to talk to you about is, is going on. You, you kind of have to be able to, to answer that. And you guys are really right. good about that for right. sure. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, even though it's pretty rough it, two in the morning when you're <laughs> talking to somebody that's wide awake and you're one eye in it. I'm sure that's pretty. Uh, I t- <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, even this morning, I mean, I was answering emails from, uh, some guys in, in Africa outfitters that, you know, I need some answers and they're out hunting. And so they answer me in the morning from camp and, and, uh, I get a, I reply as soon as I can because I want to wake up to their reply and be able to have a lot more information. And so we're, we really are. I mean, it's a, it's a full, it's a more than full-time job. I mean, we do it seven days a week and, and, um, I love it. I mean, I don't get me wrong, but we do, this is all we do and we do it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, one of the trips that we, we had done together that you had booked, um, I think this was the first one that I booked with you, um, was the Nepal trip. And, uh, we've talked about this before, man, we had such a good time and Greg and I went together and, uh, we, we had another buddy that went, um, I think that was Cal's first, was that his first international? It was. Yes. His first yeah. international hunt was a blue sheep hunt in Nepal. <laughs> well, and when he booked it, he called me and he goes, because I was turning 30 that year and Cal was too, we're the same age. And he called me and he said, what are you doing? You know, what, what hunts are you doing this year? He said, I kind of want to do something for my 30th. And I said, I'm going to Nepal. And he, he, he literally said, what's Nepal? <laughs> That's how little he knew about Nepal blue sheep, which is generally considered one of the toughest hunts in the world. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, I explained that Nepal was in a uh, country, and uh, I had to show him pictures of what was there, and, and he said he was in. So we had a 
we had kind of a little bit of a a, a uh, diverse crowd with you who's hunted quite a bit and and uh cal who who he hunts a lot i mean he's he's a fantastic hunter but he's he hadn't left uh u.s or mexico yet at that point he's been been around since then but that was his first trip yeah and you planned that thing um really well like just with you know going in the fall and like uh, we've talked about before like ryan and their trip in the spring and how crazy the weather was i mean like the, I, I feel really fortunate that we actually went and when we did and we didn't get hit the kind of snow like they did in the, in the springtime. And, um, I mean, the sheep were higher, but, uh, it, uh, it, yeah, it was, everything was planned. Like the guy we got to hunt with, um, you know, pretty much a pioneer of Nepal hunting, you know, and, and the stories and the people that he's hunted with, like that, that was, that was definitely one of the greatest experiences i ever had i don't know about you i'm sure it was because the ram you took was amazing but yeah um, yeah that was kind of the icing on the cake and you know mm -hmm. i we didn't measure it and i wasn't there for you know trying to kill a world record i yeah. just wanted an old ram and and um you know there was i would have taken a, an old ram if he had a busted horn you know i was looking for just age and um we saw a lot of big rams and I passed a lot of really nice sheep that, that, you know, I was just looking for something exceptional and got lucky that I, you know, didn't have any issues with equipment or, you know, my, my legs yeah. held up and, and was able to, able to get after it. And Your lungs it. held just up. Sheep. Yeah. My lungs <laughs> held up. Yeah. I don't know about you, but uh, <laughs> mine, mine did fine. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was a special trip. And I mean, we all, I mean, it was a, it was a great experience. Um, you know, I've, I've always heard, uh, from people that a Nepal blue sheep is one of the finest hunting experiences available on earth. Cause there's no easy way to do it. I mean, you, you can take a chopper to a point to get dropped off, but you're still a two day walk from the hunting area. Yeah. And, uh, that just takes off, you know, five days of walking. It's not like they're dropping you in the sheep. So you're walking from that point and there's, there's no real easy way to do it. And, you know, I know we've touched on this before a lot and, and something we've said, but if they had Marco Polo horns, they would be a, you know, Mark or money. Yeah. So they're, it's just, a, you know, I think some people undervalue them for the animal they are, but the, the experience I think also limits who is able to do it because it's not a hunt that you can just say, Hey, I'm going to go, go hunt a blue sheep and, and expect to see any sort of success without preparation because it's a grind yeah and it's like even if you youtube videos of a blue sheep hunting it's not like you're watching a doll sheep on rolling green you know hills it's yeah. like you're up you can tell how nasty the country is like there's just no one that's going to be like i think i want to kill a blue sheep well i mean you realize that it's three days before you can even start hunting the sheep right yeah, and i mean exactly. it's just uh yeah it's just the history of that place and it is a really exclusive club man and i'm pretty pretty fortunate to be able to have done it like when we did before kind of the explosion of the price and yeah. um i don't i can't remember how many permits you said what is there like 90 or no no there's um you know i think there's i'll have to you know don't it's not exact yeah it, it was 14. 14 when we went it was 14 in the fall and 14 in the spring um it i think it kind of ebbs and flows a little bit some years it's you know 15 in the fall and 12 or you know 16 in the spring and 12 it just kind of i think depends on on how the fall hunts go and yeah. how many issue permits they issue in the spring but it's i mean far more people have killed marco polo than than blue sheep i mean by a factor of probably 10 i mean it's it's there's 110 or 115 marco polo 
polo permits every year and there's you know 28 blue sheep so wow i, I was way off uh, maybe i was thinking polo but man that's that's not very many i did i, I no. totally didn't know no, that. i mean it's it's super limited i mean when you factor in you can't really you can kill them in pakistan but i mean that's that's a different experience and a different hunt and yeah. and um i prefer the nepalese hunts although pakistan they kill some fantastic sheep it's a different experience yeah. um and uh i i just think you know most of the pakistan hunts it's i think it's a challenge to get to the i know it's a challenge to get to the hunting area but it seems to be a relatively quick hunt once you get there and that's not the case with nepal it can it can be a 10-day hunt you know yeah. before you kill something i remember us when we were up at uh was it camp camp three or uh, um we mm-hmm. were at 14 150 or something like that i remember us looking across the mountain and there was that spanish hunter that every day he had to grind up that mountain oh, I, know. <laughs> I forgot about that do you remember that yeah i do yeah so it's in door pot and reserve where you hunt there's seven blocks that, that they hunt and um the sheep and there was there there was a guy in the neighboring block hunting and he had to go up like what was i mean the river was at like 11,000 something, yeah. wasn't it? Or was it 12? Uh, I, I think it was know, 12. He had to go up, he had to go up like 3,000 feet just to vertical feet just to get to where he was hunting every day. <laughs> <laughs> we would watch him like, or we watched him that one day. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, Coming down we in the dark every day. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah. Thankfully, we were, we were hunting with the guy we were hunting with. I'm glad we had permits <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly oh that's so, cool so what um do you uh obviously we none of us hunt a tar when we were there but do you think that's a and there isn't a lot of guys that do the tar combo is there no i mean they there aren't as many tar permits and i know a lot of guys think oh i've killed one in new zealand uh and that's fine but it's a different deal i mean it's yeah. like saying you know you kill Nodad in Morocco versus South Texas. I mean, that's, yeah. they're still Odad, but they're, you know, native to Africa. So I, you know, I think the Himalayan tar hunt is just as challenging, maybe even more. It's steeper. I don't know that it's harder, but it's, it's a steeper experience, much lower altitude, but I mean, they're in some thick stuff and we do have guys do it. I mean, we had a guy kill a ring or a tar at bull tar this year that was 14 years old, I think. Dang. Um, and it was a tank and and when he shot he actually uh hit a rock like 10 feet in front of his barrel because he was laying prone and couldn't oh see it his scope was clear <laughs> and uh he was shooting at a tar hits a rock and the rock obviously explodes thankfully nothing happened and uh tar just ran everywhere and there were there were you know 30 or 40 tar down there and he just picked a bull it wasn't even the same one and just shot and it was like a 14 year old animal and just a tank and he said i couldn't honestly couldn't tell you the difference between the two so there's some really really impressive tar in those areas um because there's not very many permits and uh but it's it's tough man but they live in the areas like my clients were down there and they were seeing mont jack this year they didn't want or have permits. I mean, they were saying like we kept seeing these weird little deer, and I was like, oh my gosh, oh, you you know that, you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'd you have know. been fighting over each other. Like, I who know. could get there first? <laughs> but you know, it's not everybody. Everybody's a collector, and I can appreciate that. So yeah, well, I mean, there's a reason why uh, GSCO we have. You know, we separate the two tars, like because mm-hmm. there is a considerable difference. I mean, I've done tar in New Zealand. I think you've done tar too, right, in New Zealand. Yeah, I yeah. never shot one. I've been but over, you've been I on just, the hunts, yeah, so you was, know. Oh yeah, yeah, we've I've been over there a couple times. Yeah, so and I mean, 
I, you can't even compare, like, I know New Zealand's steep and all, but, like, the sheer ruggedness of those of those uh, Himalayas is just insane. So, and It's intimidating. It I mean, is, You look man. up at them, and, I mean, they're just – well, I mean, you fly by Annapurna in the helicopter when you're flying to the drop zone. I mean, you're, you're yeah. flying by one of the tallest mountains in the world, and then you land, like, 10 minutes later, and you're like, oh, my gosh. And yeah. So, you're, you're – it's just – it's they're big mountains and as you've seen so that's that's uh one of the coolest trips i've ever been on for sure and and we we've done a lot um several together and that was one of the most memorable for sure yeah and not only for the hunting but i i I got sick on that trip in case anybody doesn't know that um (laughs) luckily i'd killed my ram and i came down and three days later greg and cal showed up at their ram so it all worked out but uh, yes it did um, we were uh it took you uh like 14 hours to get back to a camp that took us about five hours to walk down. Yeah, that was so brutal. You were wounded. <laughs> that was definitely brutal. I remember waking up in the morning and being like, hey, Greg, yeah, yeah I think I might have some fluid in my lungs. <laughs> yeah, you, you go, you go, Greg, hey, Greg, I'm, I'm, uh, are you feeling okay? And I was like, hey, that's, that's nice. I mean, I, was, I feel all right. Thanks for Just checking being a nice me. guy. How are you feeling? You're like, well, I'm gargling stuff. <laughs> and I zipped out of that tent so quick and I was like, what? And, uh, yeah, that was, that was, you sounded like you were gargling mouthwash when you breathed and I'm not a doctor, but I know that's not good. Yeah. And, uh, that was pretty gnarly, but, uh, thankfully the guys knew what to do and took you down and, and, um, you were able to come back to neutral and base camp, but it took you a few days though, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, I was down, like they had to bring me my food every day once I got down to base camp, but I, it was, it was the worst hike and it was all down. But mm-hmm. I mean, I couldn't go 15 yards without stopping. Jeez. Yeah, it was brutal. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, man, is I was in the best shape of my life. Like I was down 20 pounds. Um, you know, like I know you quit drinking, and I quit. You know, I quit drinking pop. Like I, you know, I did all this stuff because I knew we were getting ready. And it just, you know, sometimes it just doesn't matter. It just mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, it, everybody reacts to it differently. And I, I mean, I even though I was in the best shape of my life as well, and I mean, I like you said, I changed my diet. I quit drinking. I quit you know, everything. I, I just changed everything even on that. Hunt. I mean, I was down like 15 pounds and I'm a thin guy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I was down like 15 pounds going into that hunt. And I don't know how much I lost because I didn't weigh myself till I got home, but I, I lost another 13 pounds from the time I left for Nepal to the time I got home. Now I had, you know, we drank beer and Kathmandu yeah. and ate big meals. And like, I probably gained another like three pounds from the time I got out of the mountains to the time I weighed myself. Uh-huh. And I still was, I mean, I was down literally like 25 pounds or more from when I started training for that trip to when I got home. It was, yeah. and I don't have that much to lose. It was a grind. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, you remember that chicken that they brought all the way up the mountain? I do. And I don't want to tell people about that because I think it's a, it's a special uh, experience that you have to see in the right. ball. But, we won't uh, go too deep into that. Then. brought us luck. <laughs> For sure. For let's sure. Say the chicken didn't make it out. Yeah. And he was delicious. Yeah. <laughs> There's some good eats at, yeah, really yeah. high up. <laughs> oh, that's so. funny stuff, man. So yeah, that was uh, definitely a trip of a lifetime. And then, you know, that kind of leads me into the other, you know, kind of big sheep hunt that we did together. And that was uh, the Marco Polo in Tajik, um, 
which was a lifelong dream for me for sure. And, uh, it was a trip that I had booked in a couple years in advance with you. And, um, it was one of those trips that I just, I used to walk around SEI and just look at all the Marco Polos and be like, man, I'm, I'll never be able to afford to do that. And, you know, we talked and, and you had all the right connections and, you know, you worked with me on a payment plan and we, you know, we, we made it happen and man, that was just an amazing trip. And there, you know, going into that, like having those memories of, you know, being sick and, mm -hmm. uh, I was just like, Oh, here we go again. I know this hunt's going to be super high. You know, am I going to get sick? So that was always in the back of my mind, you know, cause you know, that we, we drive that road and it's a 20 hour drive with, you know, we stay the night and then, you know, another six hours, but uh, you're up there pretty fast, man. And, yeah. um, yeah, that was a pretty good group of guys that we had there. Um, everybody, I think everybody killed, um, their Ram for sure. So it, uh, yeah, it was, it was that was, a, it was, man, I, I had a good time. I've been up there a bunch and, um, that was definitely one of the funner groups I've ever been with. It was, you know, it was a bigger group and every, but everybody got along, you know, there were what, five hunters and two five. cameramen plus me. I mean, there were eight of us going and, and everybody had a good time and everybody was different, you know, experience levels. I mean, it was, you know, probably you and Perry and, and probably Solon's. I mean, he's, he's been around, but, um, you guys have done the most and i mean carl was just along for the ride and then uh doc burns was same thing i mean he's hunted a lot but he'd never been to asia yeah a lot of africa and stuff he, i mean yeah it was all africa and and everybody and there were no egos involved and everybody had a good time and everybody was celebrating everybody's ram and i mean it was like you know three guys killed the third day and i mean i know it was kind of like couple killed first and then it was a little bit of a lag and then you guys three guys the last three killed the killed the the uh third day and i mean it was a it was an awesome trip man and killed wolves and and uh ibex and it was a that was a that was a good group good yeah. a lot of a lot of fun stories and just you know the the story of carl rolling down the mountain and all that. yeah i didn't know if I you mean, were gonna go there or not but since nah. you said something <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, just uh he was the star of that trip for sure oh just man so dry oh gosh oh, i got a sheep and by the way my car rolled down the mountain when we were going to get it man but we it's you know we were like what <laughs> yeah just like nothing okay, there's just but... like a casual day like everyday thing like oh yeah by the way we rolled down the mountain what <laughs> they MacGyvered yeah, the engine to get the it back seat. here yeah that's right that was that was uh yeah that was a that was a memorable trip for sure and a great great group and i you know tajikistan's such a special place because you go anywhere in the world and hunt sheep and you you know you're you're looking for a specific age class of ram and depending on the you know population of sheep you it may take you a few days or you know may take you one day you might get lucky but you're not going to see a thousand rams on a hunt mm -hmm. until you go to Tajikistan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's just a, it's just a special experience. Cause I mean, there, there are literally days where you see, you know, 1500 sheep or 500 sheep one day, 200 the next 15. It's just, you never know what you're going to run into. And it's, it, it looks like the surface of the moon and it doesn't look like you'd see an animal up there, but it's just so game rich that it's, it's a very unique environment. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, I know we went in February, right? So what, um, you think that I know most guys like try to go to December, but y is there really like a best time quote unquote to go? Or, I mean, it's all good no matter when you go, right? Well, you know, yeah, within reason, not really, but there, there are some better times to go. I, I don't, 
it depends on the, the group size, really. I mean, you can go, you can kill giants this, you know, in September, but um, you're not going to go over there with five guys and kill five giants. You're not going to see as many sheep. They, they migrate, you know, so they come out of a park and, and down into the hunting areas, which are lower elevation compared to where they're at all summer, which is saying something because you're hunting at, you know, 13.5 to 16,000 feet. Yeah. So, I mean, you're... And they're coming down to that level. So you want to be there when the big herds are coming in for sure. But, I mean, really, November, it starts getting good. And, and December is fantastic because they're rutting. But I, you know, they kind of move out of the areas or move down a little lower. And then in February, they're coming back. So you see those big herds. I mean, I know a lot of guys don't – some guys don't mess with February because the snows can be deep. And we saw that when we drove through Corolg. I, mm-hmm. mean, the, the, I mean, there was probably a – 15 foot deep snow base there where they'd plowed and and um i mean it was pretty exceptional amount of snow but up in the hunting area it's not quite that bad but you know there's positives and negatives you don't want to go too late in february because the hit the the hair can slip and the season's over at the end of february so uh but we went first week of february and and i've done that a lot and always had good success and you see a lot of sheep and they're pretty pretty lethargic uh all they're thinking is food you know it's post rut so they're kind of bunched up and you see a lot of rams and i mean when perry shot his ram i think we we saw like there was a herd of probably 300 rams with it he was in a kind of a smaller group off the side but there was there there were probably 20 rams in the bunch with him but just off to the side there were just a huge pile and they were all rams every single one of them and so it's it's a good time to to you know, be able to see a lot of animals. And, and I like, I like November to February. Yeah. The, the catch those bachelor groups that late time of year. Cause they've got your bachelor right. back up again. Yeah. In December, I mean, they're, they're in unbelievable. They're in peak condition. You know, they're rutting, their necks are huge. Their hair looks awesome. They're, they're, you know, you can kill the, you, you never know what you're going to see in December because the rut, I mean, that's one thing about February that the sheep are kind of there. And so if you see one one day and you don't get an opportunity, you, as long as you don't blow it out of there, you probably will find him again. He, he may not be in the same, you know, thousand acre area, but he's going to be in the same valley somewhere. Yeah. Uh, whereas in December, I mean, you, if you pass a sheep, I've been there a lot in December and you see a sheep one day and that, her, that herd is, you know, moves out the next and they just, you know, more sheep will come, but you, you have to make a decision. You may see a giant or you may, you know, pass one looking for something better and never see it, never see it again. So yeah, it's kind of a roll of the dice. Right. And I think, uh, um, we, we were the last group, right. To be able to hand carry. Now things have changed permit wise, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know that that won't go back to that eventually, but yes, we, I mean, that year was the last year the guys were able to be able to hand carry them because they, they didn't issue them the next year they issued them. But they issued them late, so they were like, "That would have been 2020 for people that right, didn't know." Right? Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, we went February of 2019, and that 2019 2020 season, they issued them. But I, I mean, it was like December before they issued them. So anybody that was booked in November wasn't. They had to ship them. The later hunts were able to, and then COVID hit, and it just backed up everything with fish and wildlife. Not only the Marco Polo and, and the Argali permits, but I mean leopard, lion, all that stuff. Anything that requires an import permit they were working from home. And so they didn't have an online system, which they do now, which was another nightmare when they rolled that out. But, um, so everything had to be mailed in. There was, I don't know how many people were checking the mail at fish and wildlife. Cause I didn't ask, but they, they were, everybody was working from home. So nothing got done for months. 
I mean, it, you saw it with passports and everything yeah. where they were, you know, taking a ton of time. Well, they're still working through that. <laughs> and, um, it's, I mean, it's, it, it seems like there's no rhyme or reason. I think it kind of depends on which, um, biologist desks it hits on, on like leopard lion, any, any animal, because sometimes, I mean, I had a guy apply for a leopard permit the other day or back in April and, uh, he got it like 35 days later in the mail. Wow. And I've had other people that applied literally the same area, the same month. And they haven't even, it's, they're just still in, you know, in processing. They haven't even been asked a question about it. So it's, it's a frustrating, very part frustrating do, but that's another reason we handle it. Cause you know, I'm the guy calling fish and wildlife nonstop, not you. And, and, uh, I'm reporting back to multiple clients and it's, it's probably better for fish and wildlife as well, because you got one guy calling you and, and then able to answer 50 clients questions instead of, instead of 50 guys calling them. So. Hey everybody, just a quick reminder here to get signed up for our memberships, whether you're signing up as a new member or just renewing, it is vital in helping our conservation efforts for all species. We have a couple different options for you to choose from. The first is our most popular. It's $75 per year, which you get four issues of the SlamQuest magazine, which in my opinion is the best hunting mag out there. It also comes with many other benefits that you can see on our website at slamquest.org. The second option is our eMag, which is $25 per year, and you get all the same benefits with the exception of voting rights and no print magazine will be sent to you. So if you're a digital person, this one was made for you. You can learn more about how to get signed up for these memberships as well as our international and lifetime memberships at slamquest.org. Yeah. No, that's a huge part of you guys. Like, I, for me, I'm just like, here, you do, you handle the permit stuff and I'll sign over whatever you need me to sign. <laughs> you just take care of it and send me the permit when you got it. You know? Yep. Um, that, but that, uh, that, as a client, like that just, that chaps me that, I mean, you got to pay this big amount, especially if you're going for like the Mongolian sheep and stuff like that. Um, to not be able to know, like I, you may not, you're probably going to get a permit, but there's a chance you may not ever get it. And you're yep. working out, you know, 40, 50 up to a hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of money. Like that's just tough pill to swallow, man. When you're, it's such an unsure thing right now. It, it really is. And it's, it's frustrating from our point because, um, the science is there. And I mean, you've seen the Marco Polo mm-hmm. they're everywhere. There's, I mean, they're, they're in the, in the Murgab region of Tajikistan, there are at least 20,000 Marco Polo at, at least, and probably more. And that's a relatively small area. Mm-hmm. It's a big area in the grand scheme of things, but part of the country, I mean, it's probably only, I don't, I don't really even know. I mean, it's probably 20% of or 25% of the country, but there's just, pockets where there're just so many sheep and and the money is working towards anti-poaching and and it's a, an entire industry i mean there there all these people's livelihoods depend on it so they're all they do is protect these animals and that goes for everything you know in the hunting industry and i mean i don't need to preach to the choir but mm-hmm. it's frustrating when you see these you know issues that pop up with this type of thing with import and it's a slow process with permits and things like that but you know i the science is there and it's but you know on the flip side it is up to the to the nation states that you're hunting in to answer the the questions that fish and wildlife has to has to it requires you know they, they 
but like it or not, I mean, the U.S. market is the largest hunting market in the world. So Fish and Wildlife says you need to, you know, stand on one leg and, and yeah. do this or that just to get these things in. You got to do it. And um, they have the best interest of the wildlife in mind. You know, that's, that's, that is Fish and Wildlife's ultimate goal, and I believe that. But some of the, you know, delays are are in part because there are some changes in the way that they're in the things they're asking for. And, um, it just takes time to time to go through the permit applications. It's not, a, not the same process that it used to be where it was a batch, you know, they would get a hundred or, you know, they'd get a list of names, which we put you on whenever we, we submit your passport to Tajikistan. They would say, okay, there's 70 hunters from the United States. Now supply this information. We would supply it and they'd say, okay, he's on the list. He has the information. He has a permit. Here's your import permit. Now it's, you know, they have to do a non-detriment finding and along you have to write a paper basically for every application. It's a case-by-case basis, so it's just slowing the process down. And I I don't know that necessarily it has something to do with some of the lawsuits that have come up from anti-hunters, but I think it's I, – it feels intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels like a lot of the, you know, this non-detriment stuff is – either the result of a poorly executed lawsuit on the pro hunting side um, or the result of a very brilliant <laughs> lawsuit on the anti hunting side. And, and I don't really truly don't know which because yeah. they're both sides are suing fish and wildlife constantly. Yeah. It makes it tough. It's kind of the cover your extra cover your butt method. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Keep it going. So you mentioned a little bit of, of Africa and there and kind of the stuff there. Um, I know that Botswana just opened up now. Was it was a year or two ago for elephant. Yeah. And last year was the, it was supposed to open in 20, but obviously COVID pushed that off a year. Shut it off till 21. So yes, yeah. um, that I know that's a big place for you guys too. Um, and you kind of started, you know, over there in Botswana. So talk a little bit about like the, the elephant population and the kind of bulls and stuff your clients are pulling out of there. Yeah. I mean, Botswana is elephant, you know, haven. It's just unbelievable. The Okavango Delta is an oasis in the desert, literally. I mean, it's a giant Delta. It's the largest in the Delta in the world. I mean, it just, the rains from Angola fill this thing up every year and it's a natural phenomenon that's been happening, happening forever. And so it can sustain an absurd amount of wildlife. I mean, it's not just elephants, it's, you know, all sorts of other, you know, big five animals and, and planes game. But, um, it is a Botswana is at a point now where there are too many elephants. I mean, they're wrecking ecosystems because you're looking, you know, the carrying capacity at the, of the country is somewhere around like 60,000, 60 or 70,000. They've done the, done the math and, and, um, of which, you know, the country is only partially habitable to elephants. I mean, there's, there's, it's not all oasis. It's, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a, you know, the Chobe and the Okavango regions can sustain a lot, but the rest of the country can't. And there's such an overabundance of elephants. I mean, they're, I don't know if they have an exact number, but the numbers that get thrown around are anywhere from 160,000 of a minimum to 220,000 for a max. So, I mean, it's, there's an absurd, they're, they're way over two to, four times the carrying capacity um, of elephants. And if you haven't hunted where there's an overabundance of elephants, you really can't grasp the, the destruction that they can do to an, um, to an ecosystem. And, and I mean, it looks like a herd of D five dozers goes through a, goes through <laughs> a you know, woodlot. Yeah. I mean, they just, 
they they knock down trees that are you know 60 years old or and and to eat a nut at the top of it or they're just pissed off during the rut and those young bulls just put their head against the tree and just snap it in half and i mean it'll be like a tree that's 20 plus inches in diameter they're not small trees and they just they're so big and so powerful i mean those bulls in botswana a big bull there will weigh 12,000 pounds so i mean they're huge animals and stand you know 12 to 13 feet at the shoulder and so they're just incredibly destructive and and you know it's not just about the trees it's about the you know ecosystem that those trees support and the type of wildlife that that need those trees to to survive you know you got little small game that need it to to hide from eagles or you know jackals or cheetahs or whatever and so it just totally changes the ecosystem where it starts to trend towards more of an elephant only ecosystem mm-hmm. and then they start to eat everything they want and then, you know they can starve so they've understood this for a long time. The previous president of Botswana was very anti-hunting and he um, abdicated his seat because it's, I mean, it's kind of an election kind of not. He's been the president forever. And he, um, he, uh, the new president understood the value of it. And I mean, almost immediately started to work on a, on a community based elephant hunting program. And by community based, I mean, the communities in the areas that are affected by the elephants that come in and raid their crops or, you know, whatever are directly benefiting from these, uh, these hunts. And so they decided the best method to start with, which they've thankfully, you know, amended a little bit to give the outfitters more time to, to, you know, stabilize things. They were doing auctions for special bull only. So each area, these giant areas around a million acres, some much bigger, we're auctioning 10 bull only permits. And so of these 10 bull only permits, they would, the auction price they were, they were selling them for part of the money that they would, uh, a substantial amount of the money that they were doing was going directly to the communities in the area. So, you know, the community fees alone were totaling somewhere around 400 to 500,000 us dollars per Damn. area, which is a substantial amount of money for an area where the you know locals are making three to $5 a day. So, it it goes into infrastructure projects and water wells and and just all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. com, it's a it's a community enrichment deal, and um, you know they're killing ten bulls out of an area that you you see a hundred to two hundred bulls a day, and so it's different animals. So it's you know you might see two thousand bull elephant in a ten day safari, and uh, you're killing ten out of that area a year. So it's it it works out to like a an absurd number of of percentage of you know elephants repopulate at like five percent a year and we're shooting 0.02 percent or something a year so it's it is a non-detriment and it there's in every sense of the word and you're only killing bulls of a certain age and um so they auctioned permits in 2021 and we've been killing some unbelievably big elephant i mean they're big ivory i mean it's everybody's looking for the ivory and generally you know a 50 pound bull in 2022 and, and like if you weren't hunting in Zambia or Zimbabwe would be an exceptional elephant. It's a very nice respectable bull and 60 pounds. If you know, you kill 60 plus you're, you're really killing big bulls. And I mean, in 2021, we, I think we shot our clients killed 12 bulls and none of them were under 70 pounds Wow. aside, you know, each, each tusk. So, I mean, we killed some 80 plus pounders and in the country, they killed a couple over two or over a hundred um and uh, several in the 80 plus category so the the num- sheer number of animals is why that is but um 
just the age, you know, these, there, there's so many, so many animals there that, I mean, the upper age class, the anti-poaching is funded by the hunting and the operators were, were continuing the anti-poaching stuff in, in the last several years when it was closed. And, uh, well, that's good. The photographics too. I mean, the photographic guys are doing anti-poaching, which is great, but, um, it just really leads to an older age class of animal, which with pretty much anything on earth, it's, a positive for trophy quality, but with elephants in particular, I mean, they gain most of their ivory weight in the last 10 years of their lives. So like a 50 pound ivory bull could go from 50 to a hundred pounds in the last 10 years of his life. So wow. yeah, they just, it gets a lot denser and less porous and the nerve shrinks and they just, they can get, they really pack it on that last 10 years. Yeah. There's no, uh, so when you, when you buy those auction permits like that and you're going in, you can shoot any size elephant. There's no like extra trophy right. fee on top of that. Right? You kill a, you know, 50 pounder or 150 pounder. You, that's your, that's your elephant. I mean, oh, it's, cool. it's obviously guys are, we, I tell guys, you know, conservatively 65 pounds plus try to kill something over 65, hold out for bigger. And, um, I mean, even this year we're even, you know, there's been a 150 elephants or something killed last year and, we're still killing 70 plus. I mean, they're, they're really killing some big bulls. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a sound management plan and a, um, pretty special, special deal that it's open again. Cause it was closed for almost 10 years. Yeah. And I, I saw you posted the other day that all those elephants at the waterhole, you might have to yeah. throw that up on your story again, just so people can see like, yeah, holy yeah, cow is amazing. It, it's a, it's a sight to behold. And and I don't think, I mean, the, the guy that sent me that video, it's one of my hunters and he shot an exceptional, unbelievable elephant bull, beautiful, long ivory. <clears throat> and he was sitting there having lunch. And in two hours he saw over 100 bulls, not to mention that herd that, I mean, there were several herds, but there were over a hundred bull elephants in Jeez. two hours just having lunch That's crazy. And at one water hole. And you know, you have then these big herds. I mean, he said he saw like 500 elephants. And it was just one day, you know, and I posted another video of a big bull walking right up to him. It was like a 55 pounder, but they was, it didn't know what they were and it was upwind. And so they were just, it walked right up to him until they made a noise and then it ran off. But I mean, they were, it, they're just, there are a ton of elephant there. Yeah. That's cool, man. And, uh, so you don't know how many, like you can't book those way out in advance, right? I think we've talked about that before. Well, now we can, you can actually because they just, in July, they they issued, not not for all of the prime areas, um, but they issued five-year quotas uh, to, everybody had a, a quota tender where they put in their bid for, for you know, their individual areas. And um, they were awarded, all but a couple of areas have couple of the best areas have been um awarded but but most of the really good areas are are awarded so we can actually sell um like five years out now and we're selling i mean we're we couldn't before so i wasn't taking next year orders we were kind of saying you know or you know booking. i was saying like hey let's you if you want to book an elephant give me 10 grand and and it stays in escrow over here and whenever we find out, I can say, hey, this is the price. If you say, no, I don't want to do it, then I'd send it back to you. If you say, let's do it, then we, we you know, bring the, set your dates and bring the deposit up a little higher. But uh, now we can actually say, like, you can book a hunt for July 2025 and, and have a, you know, because the hunt is going to be open and there's five year at least five more years of it. Because yeah, so. there's going to be a guaranteed permit there for sure. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. That's way so. cool. 
makes yeah, it good it for you a, guys and it makes it good for the the client too because now he's assured like hey okay i don't have to be the first to get the you know the bid in there and, and uh, right you're, right. you're gonna get and your spots guaranteed yeah yeah there's in in one of the biggest benefits to that just from a from an operator standpoint the camps get nicer because nobody wanted to put in a nice camp if they were going to lose it the next year. So they, you know, they were all fly camps and tent, mm-hmm. which were fine. But I mean, you're using bucket showers and stuff like that. Well, now they can put in, you know, the traditional nice safari camps, which is, you know, if you walk 15 miles a day following elephants, it's nice to come back and have a hot shower and a good meal and sit by a campfire and, you know, kind of refreshes you to where you can keep going. 100%. And um, yeah, it's, it's so it, it, the hunts will get a lot more, uh, not that they were disorganized at all because they weren't they but a lot lot more um consistent as far as like the the food and the accommodations and stuff like that you won't be fly camping anymore oh, that's cool yeah and i mean when you're paying big money like that too you kind of right you understand with those first couple of years but you know some of your clients i'm sure are repeat clients and they want to come back and they're going to keep killing elephant bulls and they're going to watch oh, yeah. those camps just grow and you're, and it's going to turn into a super luxury out in the bush camp you know yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's exactly what's going on. We got a lot of guys that are have been hunting the last two years there, and they're now booked the next two. So mm-hmm. I mean, they're just you know a lot of guys. It's it's like anything else. I mean, you get the guys with the sheep bug. Mm-hmm. It you, it's the same once you hunt elephant and buffalo, and and it's just a different style of hunting, and it's more of a challenge I think than most people realize because you just see a you know you see these videos of elephants walking up. They can't really see that well if you don't move. I mean, they can see, but if you're not moving and they can't smell you, they don't really know much, but their ears are four feet tall. You know, yeah. they can hear, they hear a twig snap from a hundred yards away and they, they run to you cause they're big and they're intimidating and that's how they, so they approach you on purpose. I mean, they're trying to scare you into moving. And so the videos and stuff maybe don't give a good, it doesn't give a good uh, representation of the, of the hunt. Um, that you know some people think oh you're shooting a barn you know it's yeah. a what's the point of killing an elephant but it's it's a totally different experience and and it is one of the greatest hunting experiences honestly left on earth is elephant hunting well that's cool i'm glad brought botswana you know brought that back and it's a just a testament to conservation and how many you know how they've just kept up the anti-poaching like everything that they did like was able to bring it back that you know that's just that's a cool story for sure mm-hmm. yeah for, for sure, sure. So let's, uh, let's transition a little bit here and, uh, talk about, uh, what I was uh, referring to at the beginning of the podcast. When we got done, uh, last time I got a text from our executive director telling us that, uh, Hey, uh, Greg Brownlee won, uh, the super slam drawing. We just pulled his (laughs) name out of the hat and I told him, you gotta be kidding me. People are going to think this is freaking rigged. I know. <laughs> so, yeah, talk about like that. I, I tried to catch you on the phone and surprise you. Um, it didn't work out too well. But, uh, yeah, yeah, talk about uh, how many years have you, you, you know, were you in the Super Slam drawing, if you can remember? And, like, how did you first hear about GSEO? Well, I mean, I've known about GSEO for a long time. Jeff Neal, my business partner, knew Dennis. And, and I guess since I've been in the – been in the uh industry i knew about gseo just from a you know it's a collector's organization and a lot of the guys in the in the um convention would go to sci and stuff so i i just kind of always knew about it but the super slam drawing i didn't uh i didn't know about it until probably seven or eight years ago and i put in for a couple years and was kind of like well i don't know for some reason i just didn't renew it and then about 
two years ago, I just was like, you know, I need to be doing this because you never know. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not that much money, especially for the hunt. It's a hundred bucks a month, but there's several drawings. And mm-hmm. I don't know, was it two a month or two a month? Yeah. Or three? yeah. Sometimes three. <clears throat> yeah. And so, you know, for, for a hundred bucks a month to get put in there's into the hat, your name in the hat for those type of hunts, it was worth it to me. So I've been, I mean, consistently doing it for probably two and a half years and, and, uh, honestly, I don't even think about it. I just kind of, it's in there. Yeah. I pay for it. It's, it is what it is. And so when you called me, cause we had just done that podcast, <laughs> like, like you said, right before or right after we hung up, you called me, I was actually on another call and I thought, well, I was joking about, you know, like, <laughs> oh, the audio must've been messed up, which it ended up being, Yeah, but I had no idea that there was also, you know, a, a super, super slam drawing involved. And, and I drew a, <clears throat> drew a cougar hunt in Colorado and, and I watched the video and I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy to actually see. I know some, I know several guys that have drawn, you know, yeah. it's not like it's, it's a bunch of names you don't know and mm-hmm. the odds are still way better than uh putting in for any sort of draw especially for the sheep and stuff i mean there was a desert sheep drawn the week before or two weeks yeah. before i drew and and um you know it's that's a sixty thousand dollar hunt for a hundred bucks a month you can you never know man yeah, um yeah and th- those so. bin, the, re- the reason those bins look so full is because the longer you're in it the more names you get in the hat so some people that that's have been awesome. in for 10 years i mean they have 10 you know their names in there 10 times so they're right there's 100 people that have been there for 10 years that's you know that's why that thing looks so jam-packed and i didn't really realize that until i you know started talking to jason about it and uh yeah, that's uh, that's cool. So I started thinking about how long have I been in this thing? You know, it's been and mm-hmm. you know, so yeah, that's that was just it was so like, man, I remember just telling Not you right. like, hey, Greg, people are gonna think this is rigged. <laughs> you <Yeah>. literally <laughs> your name got pulled out of the, out of the <laughs> but it's not rigged. People watch the video. No, it's not. <laughs> it definitely, it definitely was not. I mean, it was that was pretty, pretty. Uh, pretty crazy that it was that day and For i was sure. telling my wife like you know i told her about all that and it just it just it worked out in a very hilarious way mm-hmm. but no i mean i'm 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 not done with it it wasn't like hey i'm awesome i won I'm out. Yeah. and now i'm out but i it's you know my, my name's still in there that's the thing yeah that, that uh you know i could win again exactly so. exactly well that's pretty that's all good stuff man that's pretty cool and uh so um so you guys uh i just got the recent magazine and and you guys got a new ad on there. Typically you guys have a bunch of different animals, but you guys have been, uh, buying the back end of that magazine for a long time. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, how does, how do you think that benefits you guys? Do you guys think that just that drives any traffic to the website or is that, is that gear get you any calls or how do you think that benefits it, you? It has gotten us a couple of calls, um, and, and bookings. I mean, the guys that call aren't just saying, Hey, I, you know, I like the hunt or I like the magazine. I, I, you know, keep up the good work. It's, it's, the guys that have called, I mean, it's like a couple of year. It's not, not a lot, but mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's good, you know, but I also, I get a lot of comments from guys saying, Oh, I saw your ad. I liked it. Or, um, yeah, you know, a bunch of those of mm-hmm. guys that are maybe you're already booking with us and stuff like that. But I mean, I, I think with any print marketing, especially when it's just a magazine like that, I mean, you're supporting an, the organization, which is good. We, we love GSEO, but, also, it's just about brand recognition. I mean, it's not, I'm not expecting, you know, to put a print ad out there and see my internet 
you know, or my website traffic go up 50% when mm-hmm. the day it hits people. That's not the really the end goal. The end goal is to let people, you know, we're here and we've been here for 47 years and God willing, we'll be here for an, another 47. And, um, it, we're, we're just trying to be consistent and that's why we take that back cover and we have for so long and, and we will continue to do so because it's a, it just is kind of like, this is our ad. And, and like I said, like you said, we changed it mm-hmm. to have one animal and, and we did that, uh, on purpose. I mean, we're going to change it every time to have kind of a highlight of an animal mm-hmm. um, instead of a collage. Cause it gets a little busy, but we're, we're, um, I mean, we, we're constantly putting stuff out there and, and, uh, every, every issue that you guys put out, we have, I have an ad on the back. So it's, we, we, it's benefited us. I think, I think just from a brand recognition standpoint more than anything, but that's what it's all about. Yeah. And the quality animals that you guys are putting on there. It's definitely awesome. Like, I think this one is Ed Yates with his Mark or, yeah, yeah, and he was. I mean, Ed. Ed's an animal. I don't. I don't have to tell anybody that he's mm-hmm. a Weatherby Award winner. But he did it right. I mean, he's one of those guys that, um, he won the Weatherby, and it wasn't. Yeah, you know, not to take anything away from the Weatherby because it's exceptional. I know I'm, the guy that won this year is an unbelievable guy as well. But I think there's a there's a perception that the Weatherby is a you know only about money and stuff like that. But Ed was extremely involved with, you know, youth hunters and things like that. And I mean, he, he, he took it. He, not only did he hunt ethically and hard, I mean, the guy goes and he's 70, I think he was 78 when he shot that Mark or, and I mean, he's, he, I've been where he shot that thing and mm-hmm. it's, it was no joke. And, um, but not only that, but I mean, he's, he's committed to the conservation side of things. And, and I mean, he's still, I, I know, I know he's on the GSCO board, but, mm-hmm. um, so that I shouldn't have to say any of this, but I mean, he, he's an exceptional guy and, and uh, that's why we put him on there. Cause it was like, you know, this is kind of exemplifies our company of, of, uh, quality experiences and, and quality hunters. And, and he's, he is definitely that guy. He's a special guy. I've known Ed since I was I mean, that's one of the reasons Jeff needed me is because Ed was really going after the Weatherby back then. Um, he uh, won it in 2011. And, but, I mean, I started working full-time with Jeff in 2007, literally just to work on logistics for the hunts he was doing. Cool. He and a couple other guys, but, I mean, it was it was mostly Ed. And so I've known him since I started. And yeah. uh, he's just a he's, a he's a unique guy, and that guy still goes. That's cool. He's man. still hunting. I mean, he's still asking about stuff. I mean, he's just <laughs> he's doing a lot of stuff. He's not like, oh, I, I won the weather. He won the weather over ten years ago, and he's still doing this stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, he's got the passion for sure. Yeah, that's cool. Hopefully, I have that kind of passion when I get to be his age too. Me too, because you see some of these guys that win the weatherby, and it's almost like they skid into the finish line, you know, and mm-hmm. they're just they're just done. You know, there's guys out there that just don't hunt after they're done with it and other other guys like ed just they're 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 still going keep going man well cool well i won't take up too much more of your time brother i just got a couple more questions uh on a personal level for you like so what are your what are your hunting goals um you know going forward just for you i know obviously your clients your number one priority but what what goals do you have and like if you could go after one animal what would that be so answer the first one yeah, I know. I know. We talked about this last time, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I'd have to go 
check the recording to see see because i get asked this question a lot of, of you know if i can hunt one thing mm-hmm. for the rest of my life what it would be and, and i have kind of a personal answer for that but from like an animal i've never never hunted before um i for me there's no more impressive animal uh especially since you know we're talking gseo which mm-hmm. is more of a you know sheep and goat collection or organization but um the altar golly i think is the most for me, I would love to go do like a legit backpack Altair golly hunt. I don't want pre-scouting. I want to go to an area that has big rams and just go. And and uh, if I kill a 54 or 64, I don't care. Yeah. I want something with big heavy mass and, and just a, a big old ram that, that you know, you're not driven up to and, and there it is. You know, I, that, I think for me, I've – the markhor are unbelievably cool animals, but uh, I seeing a Altair golly on the hoof and then having a client shoot one, um, you know, and you walk up to it and lift up the head and it, you know, they weigh like the skulls of a big ram will weigh fifty to sixty pounds, and it's just there's just nothing more impressive. I mean, they look like a stalker steer <laughs> with yeah. horns. I mean, they're just four hundred pound animals that have just giant twenty inch bases and, um. So I, for me, probably, you know, as far as sheep go, mm-hmm. uh, there or you know, mountain hunting stuff, definitely the Altair Gali. And, and, um, you know, if I can, if I can give an African answer, I, you know, I've killed my lion and, and I've hunted elephants with clients and, and there's a lot of stuff done the bongo stuff and, um, but elephant for sure. If I could hunt one animal. The Botswana and, one. Yeah. Botswana yeah. elephant, just doing it with the Bushman trackers and that type of stuff. So I've got a couple answers for that, but that's all um, good. Yeah. That's cool, man. Um, yeah, hopefully you get to do that Mongolian. That's the number one answer. The high Altai is the, Oh, um, for sure. I, I mean, mean it's I, a, it kind of has to be right. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, just a special, it's a, it's a, there's, it's a cool animal. I mean, the hang guy, they're all, those are are all super impressive, but yeah. Mongolia itself is, is one of the most, interesting places you can go i mean it's it's uh i don't know it's like when i was there it just kind of reminded me of what you would envision the great plains to be 200 years ago it's just it's unique and um the the nomads or the nomadic herders there still kind of live like that i mean they live in yurts and ride horses and you know they're shepherds but i mean they dress in traditional woolen coats and ride horses and i mean you you really feel like it's i mean you're dri- other than the fact that you're driving around in a land cruiser you feel like you're it's 200 years ago so it, it's a really really unique country and i would like to you know i've seen seen guys shoot a few argalis in mongolia but uh i'd like to be the trigger man yeah, you'd be out there with your flannel and your car. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> flannel, my car hearts. For my, anybody that my, yeah. knows Greg, like go look at his blue sheet picture, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's throwback. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Kentucky windage, like he doesn't use a turret. He wears flannels. Like I'm surprised yeah, but... he doesn't take a page out of Jeff's book and get some tarp <laughs> for his gators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I uh, I make it harder on myself for sure, and I I don't I don't know I'm I'm uh, I know there's better gear out there than a Filson flannel, but I still I still uh, I still rock it. I love it, man. That's awesome. Yeah. You're you're so. unique for sure. So right on, man. That's uh, this was really really good stuff, and uh, um, I think uh, last time we on the podcast we talked about maybe getting Jeff on at one of the conventions. I think uh, we uh, 
we get a couple beers in him and let him just roll with some stories, I think that would be a, a really good podcast for sure. What it do you would. Think? I mean, a lot, lot more interesting than talking to me for sure. He's a <laughs> guy you'd need a few hours for sure. I mean, it's and his stories almost seem unbelievable. But we moved offices about ten years ago and and pulled a bunch of he you know back when, like I said earlier they had to mail pictures to each other and stuff like that to to do business. So we have an unbelievable amount of of photographs in our storage unit, and we pulled a bunch of them out like ten years ago when we moved. And, um, I pull them out. We have boxes and boxes of these things. And a lot of them are clients, you know, which is cool too. Cause you see, you know, it's kind of a time capsule back mm-hmm. into the early days of, of the Soviet early nineties when the Soviet Union collapsed and these guys going into Russia and the equipment they had and the guys they were hunting with wearing, you know, literally wearing like bear skin things, these trappers out in Kamchatka. So it's cool, but it kind of validated a lot of the stories Jeff told me. I always believed it, but seeing it from your own eyes in today's world i mean we we're very fortunate that the access we have i know it's always under pressure and we're always kind of at the risk of it going away but it's relatively organized now i mean there's some it's adventurous and there's some things that uh you definitely wish were a little little you know ran a little better but if anything that just gives you perspective on your day-to-day life but he was living it and then we had all these pictures in the office and and um his stories are unbelievable and he's got the photos to back it up. So it's pretty cool to see. Yeah. And if he does one, we'll, uh, we'll have to throw some of those pictures up for sure. Oh, for sure. For sure. uh, I've got, you know, these, just some some of the coolest pictures and and uh, like i said i don't want to go too yeah too into it because it but it's, it's we, we need a whole nother uh, two hours for that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly so. all right man well thank you so much brother i really appreciate um you coming back on i think it came out pretty pretty good man and um uh, yeah i look forward to we'll do it again uh sometime after a i get back from alaska we'll hit up uh um one of the conventions and sit down and and do another one and talk again for sure, for sure. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it, man. It's fun. Well, congrats on the uh, Super Slam win, dude, and thanks for your support of GSEO. You guys have always been awesome. Um, and we need to get you to the convention, though. <laughs> I know. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna miss it again this year. Cause Dang I'm actually it. Be in Tajikistan. <laughs> well, that's a good so, excuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but uh, yes, I, I do need to come out there. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, thanks, Greg. I appreciate right. it. Have a good night, brother. Thanks, TJ. You too. All right, bye. bye. Hey everybody, have you heard about our Super Slam drawing? If not, check this out. Since 2010, GSEO has sent more than 250 winners on free, fully guided hunts with some of the industry's best outfitters. That's more than $5 million worth of hunts. Wow. For only $100 per month or $1,200 per year, you will have the opportunity to win a hunt of a lifetime. In 2022 alone, you will have 30 chances of winning with multiple monthly drawings. You will also receive a GSEO membership and four issues of the best hunting mag in the industry. On top of that, the longer you're in the raffle, the more names you get in the hat. So keep that in mind. That's a big incentive. To join the Super Slam drawing, go to slamquest.org and sign up today. And remember, you can't win it if you're not in it.